Today we begin a series on spiritual warfare. And as I was thinking about that, the expression war is hell came to mind. Now, I've never been in war. Some of you have. So that expression for you is probably more vivid and more real than it would be for me. But in reality, war is not hell, though it is hellish. And I spent a, a good bit of time. I, now, I'm, I love to read history, to research history. And I, I spent a good deal of time looking at these conflicts that have plagued America all the way from pre-revolutionary times even up to what we're currently experiencing in Iraq and Afghanistan. But I decided I'd apply my math skills and begin to add up the military deaths from the American Revolution up to our current engagements now. And if my math is anywhere close to correct, we have lost over one and a half million servicemen and women since the American Revolution. That's a lot of folks. What I found even more staggering, 625,000 of those were lost in the Civil War alone. Of all America's battles, that was likely the most hellish for us. Now those numbers are staggering until you compare them on international scale. Over 11 million military dead in World War I. Nearly 60 million international deaths in World War II. Huge numbers. And that's just those who were out there with the guns and in the tanks fighting the battles. It's not including the civilians who paid the price, the bodies that were maimed, the property lost, the, the families that were ripped apart the national sovereignty that has been lost. I guess it's not too much of an exaggeration to say that war is hell. We can certainly say that it was hellish. It has been estimated that since 3600 B.C., there have only been about 250 total years that there has not been a war somewhere. Think about that. Over 5,000 years. There's only been about 250 of those when there hasn't been war. Well, actually the news is worse than that. Because I'm here to tell you since Adam and Eve in the garden, there has not been one year or one day when warfare has not been taking place. And I'm here to tell you that even though you and I sit on comfortable chairs on a Sunday morning in Greensboro, Georgia, you and I are in the middle of a war that is every bit as real as any conflict that has ever been fought on European shores or on the African continent or even right here in our own between the north and the south. We're in a spiritual war. And until we come to grips, to terms with the fact that we are in the midst of spiritual warfare, then we will live much of our life deluded and defeated. This morning and for the next two Sundays, I want to help us to engage with the truth of the fact that we are in a period 
of warfare, spiritual warfare. This, my friends, is war. And we need to wake up to the fact. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 10 to 18. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 10 to 18. Would you stand with me as we honor God's word by standing as we read it? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the saints. Father, help us to understand and apply your truth to our lives. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You can have a seat. We're actually going to be looking at this passage both this week and next because there's far too much to try to cover in just a few minutes today. But what can we glean uh, from this passage, from these verses, about the reality of spiritual warfare that we engage in? What can we learn about the spiritual war? Well, the first thing that we can learn is this. Our spiritual enemy is real. Our spiritual enemy is real. Notice what Paul writes in verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Put on the armor so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, there are a number of pseudo-intellectuals out there who will make all kinds of fun of you if you say that the devil is a real being, a real entity. They will put you down. They will call you an idiot. They will call you uh, dim-witted. They will call you narrow-minded. They've got all kinds of words that they'll call you. Don't bite. Don't take the bait. I'm here to tell you that you do not have to check your brain at the door in order to believe that there is a devil. I challenge you to begin reading from Genesis. Go all the way to Revelation. And you will encounter... This being who is never treated like some force, who is never treated like some, you know, phantom. He's always treated as a real entity, a real being with evil intent who's always up to no good. I challenge you, any thoughtful person who takes God's word seriously cannot come away with an understanding of the devil as being anything other than a real being and really evil. Now, for the purpose of our study together this morning, we do not have time to, to delve into all that Scripture says 
about this, this character called the devil, but I want to tell you, he is not what you see in the Looney Tunes cartoons. He is not some Elmer Fudd-looking character in a red flannel suit with horns, a tail, and a pitchfork. If that's your image of who the devil is, then I want to introduce you to what the Bible says about who the devil is. And the best way to do that is by looking at what he's called. You can understand a lot from a, about a, a person by what people say about him. And you can understand a lot from, about Satan from what the Bible says about him. And so I'm just going to share with you some of the things that he's called in Scripture. And I want you to listen to these because it will help you to understand who he is. He's called the destroyer. He's called the God of this world, the accuser, the great dragon, the adversary, lawless one, liar, morning star who's thrown down from heaven, murderer, deceiver, prince of the power of the air, devil, ruler of this world, enemy, evil one, serpent, father of lies, tempter, and thief. In fact, in John 10.10, we are told that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Last week, when we brought Rick before you. We presented you also with a job description for his role. Well, here's, here's Satan's job description. Kill, steal, destroy. For millennia, he's done nothing but kill, steal, and destroy. Now, when we say we have a real enemy... This is who we're talking about. This is who is behind it. This is kind of scary. I, uh, I took a few books with me to read. I finally was able to finish the book, The Hole in the Gospel, which is an excellent book. But I took a couple of secular thriller type things, and I started reading one of them on... Um, I guess it was Thursday night. I finished holding the gospel, and I started reading this other book, and it it got a little spooky. Now, this was not one of those horror, blood and guts kind of things, but it just with the opening thing, it was it wasn't a Stephen King, but it was kind of a Stephen Kingish kind of thing. And and I read that thing, and I finally I closed the book, and I said, you know what? I'm up here in a mountain cabin, miles away from anybody. I don't think I want to be reading this tonight. It's a little spooky. It's a little scary. Now, when you read, if you take seriously what God's Word says about this person, Satan, the devil, if you take that seriously and you begin to look at who he is and what he does, then you could get a little bit overwhelmed. You could look at this and start shaking in your boots. But I don't want you doing that. I want to give you a little bit fuller picture of what Scripture says. I want to tell you what the Bible says about this guy named Satan. First of all, Satan is not equal to God. Satan is not God's equal. He may be powerful. 
He may be conniving, but he is not God's equal. His knowledge, his presence, and his power are limited. He is a created being, a fallen angelic being. He, though he wants to elevate himself to the place where God is, he cannot. His pride has puffed him up, but God has knocked him down. And all the way, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis and you read about the fall of Adam and Eve, it says even there, That the seed of a woman referring to Jesus Christ would crush the head of the serpent. Even there, we're told about the victory. There is no way that Satan wins. And I know because I've read the end of the book. We also need to note that Satan has been defeated by the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not that he's a wimp. You see, he's been defeated The cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb defeated Satan. It is that victory that we celebrated as we sang in Christ alone. We stand with him in victory. We also note that Satan can tempt believers and he can come against them. But he cannot possess a Christian. Nor are we helpless against his schemes. Think about this. Satan's powerful. It's true. Satan can oppress you, but he can never possess you. Not if you're God's. If you belong to God, he can't have you. He can lie to you. He can deceive you. But he can never have you. But don't ever think that you are helpless. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a moment. And then finally, Satan's work has remained the same since the garden. He is consumed by pride and self-glory, and he seeks to draw people into adopting the same rebellious attitude. Pride and self-glory. He wanted to raise himself up above God. What did he tell Adam and Eve in the garden? Oh, God doesn't want you to take of the fruit of this tree because when you do, You will be, what? Like him. It's the same thing. It's the same lie. It's told over and over and over and over and over again, century after century after century after century. It's the same lie that he continues to whisper into your ear. You can be Lord. You can make the decisions for your own life. You can be the captain of your destiny. Satan hadn't changed much. But sadly, his tactics are quite effective. We have a very real enemy. The second thing that we can glean from this is this. Spiritual warfare is real. We have an enemy, a real enemy, and we're in a real spiritual war. Spiritual warfare is real. Verse 12 For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's true. We have arguments and disagreements and disputes with other people. We go toe-to-toe with folks, and we view them as our adversaries. But contrary to the wizard's admonition, folks, take a look behind the curtain. 
There's more than just what you see going on. There's more to our disputes, more to our fighting, more to our anger than meets the eye. There's a spiritual reality at work here, one which we need to understand and cannot afford to ignore. Paul tells us very clearly, our battle is not against flesh and blood. You are having an argument, husband and wife. Okay, that's real. You're having a dispute. There's something more going on than just the argument that you're having, husband and wife, parent and child, employer and employee, person in line at Ingalls or on the interstate. There's more going on than just that dispute. Typically, flesh and blood is as far as we look. The physical reality is as deep as we go. Someone hurts our feelings, and we pout and withdraw. Someone insults us, and we become more aggressive verbally towards them, or maybe even physically towards them. Satan, you see, is always seeking an opportunity to stir up trouble and to destroy relationships. He keeps reminding us of that unkind word that was spoken to us or that unthoughtful action that was done against us. He tells us that we deserve better, that it's not fair that they did that. It's not fair that they said that. And his deception twists and turns in our minds, repeating itself over and over like a wind chime in a storm. It puts knots in our stomach. It pumps up our blood pressure. That word, that action against us, it was real. But it becomes an opening for the father of lies to manipulate us. And folks, he'll only be satisfied when he's stolen your peace, killed your friendships, and destroyed your fellowship with the Father. He can't have your soul. But that doesn't mean he's content to leave you alone. This is a spiritual war. And I'm here to tell you, folks, that we end up fighting it on three fronts. You may have heard this before. We fight on the first front of the world. The world. Now, when I'm talking about the world, I'm not talking about the planet Earth. I'm not saying that the Earth is rising up against us. Nor am I necessarily talking about the people who inhabit the planet. Instead, by the world, I mean that way of thinking, that system of thinking that is in opposition to the sovereign rule of God. It is that universal way of thinking. The human race is saturated with selfishness and materialism and greed and self-centeredness. It is a way of thinking that is common to us, common to mankind. It is a, a system. That's what, when we talk about the world, that's what we're talking about. Now, how do I know this? Because God's Word says it. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, As for you, he says, writing to believers, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed, what? The ways 
of this world. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, the ways of the world. There is a system. And that system seeks to set us up above the sovereignty of God. That's the first front on which we fight. But it's a three-front war, and the second front on which we fight is the flesh. Now, by flesh, I don't mean your battle of the bulge. I'm not talking about skin and bones here. By flesh, I'm talking about the internal, excuse me, I'm talking about the internal resistance to acknowledging Jesus as Lord. Now, we said there was a system, a way of the world, but there's something inside us that also rebels against acknowledging Jesus as Lord. We want to be Lord. We want to be in the driver's seat. We want to sit on the throne. We want to put our self-interest ahead of God. And it's only when we come to faith in Jesus Christ and acknowledge him as Savior and Lord that our old nature, the Bible says, is put to death. That sin nature is killed. We read again in Ephesians 2, picking up with verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and, or, the, or our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you've been saved. We now... You and I have, we live on this side of our Christian experience. We live that we, we once were bound to our sinful nature. We once were dead in our sins and transgressions. We once were living in darkness. But now, because we have come to faith in Jesus Christ, we have a new life. We've been born again. We have a new nature. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we never had to think about the old nature? But sadly, there are patterns that have been set up in our lives. There are habits that we have developed that we tend to go back to. Now, why do we go back to those things? Because at one time, we found satisfaction in them. At one time, there was, there was joy in it. At one time, there was, there, was, there was happiness in that. You know, why is sin actually tempting to us? If there was no pleasure in it, there would be no temptation. I mean, when I go to the grocery store, I'm often tempted to buy bluebell ice, ice cream. But I am never tempted to buy kale. It never crosses my mind. I am never tempted to buy Brussels sprouts. Let me walk by one of those little apple pie things, maybe. Brussels sprouts, not so much. You see, there are these patterns that have developed in our lives. We found a way before Christ, to be satisfied, to have our needs met. And even in Christ, there is the lie, the deceit that says, if you go back to that, you'll find satisfaction there. You'll find joy there. You'll find contentment there. You'll find peace there. You and I have been there. We we fought that battle. Now, we know... 
It's not joy, peace, contentment, and happiness that we end up finding when we go back to those old patterns. What is it we find? Guilt? Dissatisfaction? Because we're not that person anymore. But that doesn't mean it's still not another front on the war, the spiritual war we fight. And so we've got the world, this system, this way of thinking. We've got the flesh. We've got this internal desire for us to be Lord ourselves. And the third front is this, and we've already talked about him a little bit, and that is the devil. That's the third front on the spiritual war. Now I want to say right up front, please don't go looking for Satan behind every single bush. There are people who blame Satan for everything. They'll wake up at a new pimple on their face. Look what the devil did last night. They'll drop a cup of coffee. Whoops, look what the devil just did. They go get a bad dye job. Oh, look what the devil just did. They back their car into a pole. Oh, the devil must have done that. Listen, got to be really careful here that we don't give Satan credit where he doesn't deserve credit. It's not that Satan works in every little thing in our lives to, to cause the bad things to happen. Most of the time, that's our fault. Or someone else's fault. It's what Satan does with those opportunities. That's where his work is. Satan's finest work is how he gets us to respond to the circumstances of life. When the pimple pops up. When the cup of coffee drops. When we back into that pole. Or we look at what the stylist did to our hair. It's how he gets us to respond. You see, his desire is to get us to respond to others, to God, and to life in general in ways that are contrary to God's purpose and his will. For instance, he stirs us to anger. Man, he's got one of these big stirring spoons like your grandma used to have. He stirs us to anger. But what does the Bible say? Man's anger does not accomplish the will of God. He, he puffs us up with pride. But what does, what does the Bible say? The Bible says that God will humble the proud and exalt the humble. He makes us feel self-sufficient. As if we can go through life and not need God. But what we know is that I need him every hour. That there's not a moment of the day that I don't need to walk with God. Folks, when we enter spiritual warfare, let's open up our eyes here and see that we're fighting on three fronts. There's a system of thinking, the world. There's an internal struggle, the flesh. Even though it's dead, <laughs> it's like these Night of the Living Dead movies. They just, it just wants to keep coming back. Keep drawing us back. But in the midst of this, we also fight a front against Satan himself. We're fighting the devil, his lies, his temptations, his deceit. But there's some good news. And that's this, and we can also glean this. We are not helpless in the battle. You and I are not helpless in this battle. You would think... I, if I were a general, I would not want to fight a war on three fronts. But when I'm fighting in the Lord's army, 
we can handle it. Because I'm not helpless in the battle. This is what we read, uh, verses 10 through 13. Finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so when the day comes, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Now notice what we're said. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Or some translations, the power of his might. What I'm here to tell you is that on your own, you don't have to be wise enough or strong enough. In fact, if you want to go toe-to-toe with the devil, with your own wisdom, and with your own strength, you're going to be beaten time after time after time after time. Satan's gotten pretty good at this after a few millennia. He is more than a worthy adversary for you alone. You cannot stand toe-to-toe with him alone. The good news is you don't have to. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, I can do everything, everything through him who gives me strength. There's no battle I will engage. No temptation I will ever face. No problem that will ever confront me that I cannot handle, not in my own strength, not by my own wisdom, but by him who gives me strength. Paul wrote to the Romans, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. What's more than conqueror? I I mean... It's, it's a conqueror is a conqueror, right? You win. More than conqueror means that you have overwhelmingly overcome. You're doing the end zone dance. You've left the other team in the mud. Now, I don't, I don't know if any of you are baseball fans, especially if you're Red Sox fans. I'm sorry. They had a terrible game against the Yankees yesterday. They were up nine to nothing. I mean, that was, they're, putting, they're putting it on them. Bobby Valentine, the new manager, he's over there having a good time. He, nine to nothing. Everything is going well. And then all of a sudden, a seven-run inning. Oh, now it's nine to seven. Well, we're still ahead. And then, bam, a second seven-run inning. Red Sox couldn't do anything right. It was utterly embarrassing. They kept changing pitchers and changing pitchers. I mean, they used everything they had. They couldn't stop it. In that sense, and I'm not a Yankees fan, by the way. I'm a Texas Ranger. Wait a minute. Two-time AL champion Texas Ranger fan who also lost yesterday a doubleheader. But, uh, but what the Yankees did to the Red Sox yesterday, they were more than conquerors. They, what's the expression? They kicked butt and took names. I mean, they trounced them. Here they were thinking they had the victory, and all of a sudden, they were utterly crushed. Now, look at this. In all these things, and Paul's talking about all the challenges they're facing. In all these things, we are more, more, more than conquerors. 
Not because of our own strength, not because of our own wisdom, but through him who loved us. We share in the victory of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have a limitless source of spiritual power that can be brought to bear in the spiritual battle. But often what we do is we focus on our own limits, on our own weaknesses. And when we do, our focus is wrong. Once again, let me remind you of something Paul learned, and he told it to the church in Corinth. He said, my grace, this is what Paul told, this is what God told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul goes on to conclude, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight, I take joy in my weaknesses. I take joy in insults. I take joy in hardships. I take joy in persecutions. I take joy in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Folks, don't, do not just skim over this. What Paul said is utterly contrary to the way you have been thinking all your life. How many of us take joy in all those things? None of us. We're in utter misery in conflict. We're in utter misery when we're facing all these things. But Paul says, I find delight in them. Now, Paul is not some masochist. Paul is not just someone who enjoys being beaten up. No more than you or I would. But Paul says, listen to what I've discovered. I've discovered that when I am weakest, God's strength is there all the more. When I am weak, then I'm strong. And therefore, I delight in these things because they're an opportunity for God to come in and show himself as powerful, as Lord, as King as ruler. It's another opportunity for him to come in and put Satan under his heel and grind. And that's why Paul could say, I delight in these things because it's an opportunity for God to show up and show off in my life. But not only is there power available to us, and by the way, this power uh, in, in the Greek is, is the word dunamis, it's the word from which we get our English word dynamite. It's an explosive power. Not only do we have power, but we also have resources. He mentions the full armor of God twice in what we've read here just a moment ago. And I'm, we're going to look at that in detail next week. Because you need to know that you not only have power to face the battle, but you have armament to face the battle. But let me just give you an image to help you as you plan for next week. We try to supply our servicemen and women with the best gear that they can have to engage the enemy. We, we want to give them the best that they've got to both defend themselves in a defensive way, but also to take the attack to the enemy in an offensive way. And so we provide things. We helmets, Kevlar, vests, the right footwear, the right attire, 
for them to go out and confront the enemy, the rifles, the tanks. We, we give them everything they need in order to engage the enemy. Now, think about it. Soldier's been sent on a mission. He gets up that day. He leaves his helmet behind. Doesn't bother putting his vest on, any of the protective gear he's been given. Doesn't take his rifle. Doesn't put on his boots. Just kind of goes out into the battle in shorts and a T-shirt. He's just asking to be shot. He's just asking to be defeated. He's no good on that mission. He's no good to his buddies. He's just looking to be beaten. And I've got to tell you that you and I have the same dilemma. If we do not recognize that we are in a spiritual war, that this is war that we live in, then we will walk out into the battle in shorts and a t-shirt and wonder why Satan's just peppering us all day long. Because we're not prepared, we're not alert, we're not ready, and therefore we can't take a stand, though we're called to take a stand. We have a spiritual enemy. He's real. This is spiritual warfare. It's real. But God has real power and real resources to help us live in victory as more than conquerors. And so how should we respond Let me run you off a list of things real quick. First of all, be aware that you're in the middle of a spiritual warfare. The worst thing that you could do is to ignore it. The worst thing you can do is to ignore it. Lynn, you've been over there recently. Any guys over there pretending they're like, like they're not in war? No, they know it. We'd better. Secondly, do not underestimate the enemy's power. We have a powerful enemy, but don't overestimate it either. If you you underestimate it, then you're probably not going to engage for battle. If you overestimate it, then you're probably going to be too scared to walk out there. Third, remember that Jesus has already won the victory. Jesus has already defeated Satan. Fourth, rely on God's limitless power and resources, not on your own. Rely on what God has in store for you. And then finally, take your stand. Take your stand. The expression, man up, (laughs) probably a pretty good one. Acknowledge where you are. Use the resources that you've been given and take your stand.